Welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. I'm Rob McLeod, joined as always by Brennan O'Leary. And today, part two of Ivan Illich's Deschooling Society. And today we're going to follow up the second half of our book club by uh, discussing some of the solutions that Ivan Illich presents in his work from 1971 that is still relevant today. And uh, perhaps we've still yet to fully flesh out some of his suggestions for a progressive or counselor-centric approach to school. And uh, yeah, dig deep into his suggestions for how to solve what's wrong with school. So with that as an introduction, how are you, Brendan? I'm fine, Rob. And yourself? I'm well. So for those maybe who haven't heard part one of this discussion. So Illich was a priest, a Roman Catholic priest, and he became disenfranchised first with the church. And uh, he also wrote on the uh, ills of the healthcare system uh, before turning his attention to schooling. The idea that, you know, we confuse teaching with learning. Uh, We confuse school with education. So he was not anti-education at all. He valued people's uh, right to learn things that are important to them. But he did say that, you know, we, we, we should de-school society rather than just reforming our educational establishment. A lot of the focus should be on what's called a hidden curriculum. So not just the types of maths and English and history we teach, but also the kind of social glue that holds school together and the unspoken, what he calls myths. So he actually says that there's four big myths underpinning school. And one of them is the, the myth of institutionalized values that we need school to learn. He says that the human activity that least needs that manipulation is educational learning. That is something that we are, it is ingrained in us. It is natural to us as humans to learn. And so we don't, the idea that school is the only place that happens is, is a myth, which doesn't serve us as individuals or serve our society. His second myth is the one that you're even able to measure things that when we have our tests, our assessments, the idea that we can put a score on that and give a grade and a certificate, and this shows growth is a myth to Illich. He said, of course, you can do that, but it's it's not actually showing you our growth. Growth is not a measurable, it's something you see in context and in use. So alongside the fact that, you know, it's a myth that you need school to learn, it's a myth that you can measure and that grades and certificates show you growth. He also says that school itself is kind of like almost a product that is just here to kind of package up the curriculum and uh, sell it and sell new versions of it over and over again. And that ties into his fourth myth that the more education in terms of institutionalized education, the more pupil hours you put in, the more you buy into the notion of school, the, the more that you are progressing. So he's essentially calling BS on the whole school system way back in 71. As we said in part one, arguably, those ideas of standardized testing and measurement have taken over far, far more since then. I say arguably, but I, I wouldn't... <laughs> I would say it's beyond arguably, it's definitely the case. Easily arguably. Yeah, and those things he's critiquing in, I would say, easily arguably have only expanded uh, in terms of their their hold over our concepts of education rather than minimized. And the, the thing that I really liked about his work is that he doesn't only offer these critiques because certainly you and I included, it is easy to critique what is happening in education, but it's a very different thing to offer a solution. And as you said, he wasn't talking about reform for the educational system itself. 
He was talking about something fundamentally new, and that's what we're going to dig in today, his idea of solutions. So probably most central to this when we get into this idea of like, okay, well, what would replace schools as we know them? He introduced this idea of learning webs with the freedom to learn. Can you dig into that, the kind of three foundations that that's built upon? Yeah, so he states that education, the system, should have three purposes. The one he's proposing to build. It should provide learning resources to everyone who wants to learn. It should empower anyone who wants to share their knowledge in any way, whether that's to new learners or to the the community. And it should allow anyone who wants to present an issue to the public, to the community, with the opportunity to make that kind of issue known. So it's it's based very much on the idea that you're freedom to learn anything you want and that's important to you but implicit in that is the idea that there is an opportunity for you to make social and personal change as a result of your education which is very core to progressive education especially stuff like Freire who was connected to Illich he's saying that we don't need to force people to be educated, especially not in this very specific school-based way. Humans want to do this, and what we need to do is build an education system that allows them to do it. So his solution to uh, allow everyone to get the opportunity to learn and to share and to make social change, he comes up with four parts to his solution. Number one, he says that you should be able to access resources. He calls educational objects. So Anything that you might use for formal learning. Again, this is from the early 70s. There's a lot of stuff that's now available to us on the internet through um, portals or even just products that are much cheaper that you can buy on good old amazon.com. But he's also talking about much more specific and scientific equipment and, and more specialized equipment too. So he says that any educational object should be available to anyone in the community to reserve. So anything that's currently stored in a, a library, a laboratory, any kind of museum or theater, even stuff that you could find in factories and airports and farms, you should be able to access those resources to help you to learn. That's only one part of the equation. So these four parts are kind of interlocked and you would have to make a bit of a leap of faith to um, embrace all four of these solutions to embody uh, Illich's proposed system. But the first thing is you need a resource, no matter how specific, scientific, outlandish, unusual. You want to get the uh, Large Hadron Collider for an afternoon, should be available for you. I'll briefly talk about the other three and then maybe you can tell me your thoughts on any of them. So the other three is a skill exchange, exchanging skills with people who in the community who have them like an internship or going to shadow somebody. I'll get into that a little bit more. Third one is peer matching. So finding like-minded people who want to study similar things to you. And then the fourth one is to be able to find essentially tutors and teachers that can teach you specific things. So resources, an opportunity for kind of shadowing or internship, matching with peers who have similar interests and access to an educator. So he's not saying do away with all teachers. He's saying repurpose their skills. Yeah. So well, those are the the big general principles. I think in our previous episode, we tried to give a few practical examples of this. I think, did we not bring up your interest in the post-punk band The Fall as one such? And if we didn't, let's do it now. Marky Smith and crew. So you are, let's pretend we're living in Illich's world. You're Brennan O'Leary, who has a love for the 
the punk band, The Fall, and you want to dig more into this. So you have an interest. You want to learn. You're living in a system where you're empowered to learn, share, and eventually perhaps in some way present an issue or share what you've learned or uncovered with the public. What might this look like in 2023, as you say, now that we do have the internet, now that we do have access to all of these things? So the first one I, I would go to, the easiest of the four, might be the peer matching. So um, right now, in multiple Facebook groups that are and Reddit groups that, that talk about the fall all the time, it would not be difficult for me if I was say saying, I want to do a podcast to research into the fall more. I don't think it would be very difficult for me to find three or four like-minded people. The way Ellis described this is the peer matching is a communication network which permits persons to describe the learning activity in which they wish to engage in the hope of finding a partner for the inquiry. To us in 2023, the, of the four, this is the one that 100% exists and you can do this right now. Uh, and we all do it all the time. We're reaching out, asking questions, finding groups. So that's my first point of call. I find uh, like-minded people uh, throw it some questions on Twitter. You know, who wants to do this? Who wants to write a book, research, etc. Then what I might do is to go to find skill exchange. Let's say I want to find out about recording post-punk music or what inspires people to write and those things. Uh, when I go to the skill exchange, the skill model, I might go to a recording studio and observe a recording engineer and talk about the the, the tricks of the trade that they use to record this specific type of music. I might talk to other people that play in similar bands. I might talk to former members of the band because sadly, Marky e. Smith is dead. But in terms of the skill exchange, the way Illich describes it is that, and he actually talks about using a computer to do this, which is interesting because again, 70s, there wasn't uh, beyond some experimental stuff in terms of computer communication. This was not something. So he actually talks about newspapers and things like that. So so he basically says that he wants to organize a skill exchange area where people could list their skills and the, the conditions under which they're willing to serve as models for others who want to learn these skills. So anyone who works in a shop, a library, a laboratory, a photo lab, anything like that, that would allow people to come in and shadow and work, what we would call an internship in some ways. So yes, yeah, say if I was particularly interested in this particular form of music or this particular um, area of study, I would find someone who worked in that area. I would shadow them. I would talk to them. I would learn everything from them. So already you can kind of see I'm well on the way from someone who is has a desire to learn but knows very little. I've reached out to a group of peers and we've set up some um, forums, some discussions. We've started to talk about what we can learn from each other. I've then found some people who have firsthand knowledge of the thing I'm trying to learn and I'm learning from them. So uh, an example might be if I wanted to make a record that sounded like this band. I've got my like-minded peers. I go to a recording studio. I find some musicians. I talk to them. I shadow them. I, I, and I think it's very important. Illich believes, as he st stated earlier, that this is a human drive that does not need to be manipulated in an institution. That is not a mindset that a lot of people have. So it's important to state that that's where he's coming from. Help me clarify this if I'm wrong, but when comparing peer matching to skill exchanges, internship, etc., peer matching seems to be perhaps people who are closer to your level 
of understanding or interest, whereas the skill exchanges, the internship, you are looking for sort of a master apprentice or someone who has more yeah, absolutely. distinguished. So, this- so the skill exchange, this is someone who is in some way your superior, whereas the peer matching is someone who is parallel. Peer matches, you might have different sets of knowledge, but they're more someone who is roughly parallel to you in terms of this pursuit. Absolutely. Peer matching, he describes finding a partner for the inquiry, whereas the skills exchanges, he talks about a person who possesses the skills and is willing to demonstrate it to you. So you need a person who's probably, like you say, a peer, you're both noobs to this, and then you have a, a, a person who's willing to not necessarily teach you, and that is important, but to model, to demonstrate to allow you to shadow them. And then that kind of, I guess, brings us to probably the third one, which is your resources. If I'm using the example from before, I want to make some music. I'm going to need some specific resources that I may or may not own, including recording equipment, including musical instrumentation and stuff like that. And don't forget, this is in place of school. This isn't something we do extra because it So then I've got my resources now. I've got my peers. I've got my internship model going on. I've got my access to the resources I need. And that could also be distribution of those records and pressing the records and making the covers and all of those things that I need. And a lot of these sound like some of the enterprise schemes that that have been run throughout the years to help young people, entrepreneurship kind of grants and things like that. There's a lot of models for these kind of things happening. And then the references to educators at large, this idea of there's still a space for a teacher or a counselor or a coach here. Can we unpack that one just a little bit further? Yeah, he literally says there's a directory of all of the professionals and freelancers who are heard to act as a coach, a counselor. All of the forms of teachers that we've talked about are possible in this kind of model. It's just a person who is not necessarily the professional expert in that area, not someone who can give you resources, but they're a teacher. They have the skills to move you along and help you to plan your journey and and maybe find information that uh, will help you to make that progress. And so I guess that's the fourth part of the puzzle. He actually suggests, and we can get into this a little bit more about the wider social context that would be necessary for this to really take place. We've talked about this in the past, that for this more progressive, counselor-centered kind of type of education or very much open type of education. For this to happen, maybe a more, I wouldn't go as far as to say socialist, but a place that is not as driven by the need to get up and go to work in the morning regardless. So things like universal basic income and things like that would make these types of education systems a bit easier to implement. But they're absolutely, as we can see, all of these things are totally able to be implemented right now. But he talks about how there could be credits given. Over the course of a year, you might get a certain amount of credits. So basically, you would hire teachers, you would hire someone using these credits. And I guess they would help you to structure the other parts of this model. So to find peers, to find resources and to find a a skills model. He doesn't set it out quite as explicitly as that. It's um, it's totally doable. And if you think about his critiques of school and the myths of school, especially those big ones that you can't really measure progress and that school isn't really the only place you can learn, then given that as a starting point, 
it's really the belief that humans are driven to learn. And he's setting up a system here, which uh, in 1971 would have been far more difficult to uh, put in place than right now. The, the only thing holding us back from this system is our belief in it, I would argue right now. Yeah, our captivation with those myths that he's presenting. And yeah, just to that last piece about the society thing, we often talk about the relationship of education systems or school and society and what's the interplay how is one influencing the other and like you mentioned a society where there might be something in place like a universal basic income or a more socialist leaning structure is probably a better fit for these kinds of ideas that Illich is presenting but I'm also curious to what degree if you start tipping the education system more and more in this direction to what degree do those societal political changes begin to happen faster and faster when when it's receiving more of the feedback from the kind of education that that is asking people to contribute back into education should allow a person to bring forward into the society the things that they've they've uncovered or learned or i mean that that in itself is a fundamentally different understanding to a more traditional expert-centered model or even the mainstream kind of coach model, the idea that you learn through dialogue and through experience and you're in charge of what is necessary to learn and you're responsible for learning it and you can also use what you've learned to make a change in the world. Mm-hmm. It is that is, that is still a revolutionary idea in terms of yeah, education. If I, if I run it through our three types of school model, I can kind of think of something like, you know, in the expert centric realm, it's like, no, no, you get your education because you've got a duty to uphold in society. And as we move more into the coach, it's like, no, 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 you need, you know, this to be a functional, high performing citizen within our citizenry. You know the the parameters already set, but we need with a focus to make, on on jobs and with a focus work. on jo- with jobs and as well like in the political realm that you know you're an informed person participating in the democracy. Sure. Then we move into this one, which is like no 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 no. There's no division line here. You're not like a participant and passing off the work to somebody else. No no no. You are also influencing the nature of society by the very nature of you. being engaged in your education. Education is not preparing you for the engagement. Your education is part of the engagement with the social, political world around you. Yeah, and we're so deeply swimming in that water of the participatory democracy and the capitalist kind of, and the school is preparing you for to play your part in that world and to to get the qualifications to allow you to then get your job and move through. We're we're deeply into that model, and Illich is kind of shining a light on that and saying, okay, well, actually, that doesn't really hold up to scrutiny. And so, of the myths of everything, it is that second one about how you can measure progress, which is at the core of the mainstream coach-centric model that that we can abstract off parts of the world and life and reality, and then we can measure your progress in those things. And then that's good because then that shows that you've got better at that thing. Data shows it. Yeah, and that, but that's the only thing that matters that you get better in. Like all of the other fuzzier stuff that's harder to measure, or the 50 other things we didn't measure that we could have, 
they are less important. His idea, I think, for me, centers around that myth at its core that you can measure and then give certificates based on that. And you probably know as well as I do that that's what it comes down to when you start to have conversations about changing education. It will be, yes, but we're still in a place that when they get to 14, 16, 18, 22, passing those tests is what's going to mean they are successful or not. And so those are Illich's solutions to a to a, a society that is being schooled by uh, what he calls manipulative institutions, i.e. there's a very specific set of rules and a way to use that institution. School has a set of rules. It's not this free choice of education. Somebody has designed it. And he's saying that design is counterproductive to humans flourishing, to us taking responsibility for our own actions, for us making change in the world. And his solution, in, in and of itself, it's not a super bold one. The fact that you find someone to work with and then you go and watch somebody do it and then you have a bit of a coach or a teacher to help you learn along the way and then you get access to the resources you need. That's pretty simple in and of itself and totally doable. And that's why I say it's only our belief in that that's holding us back. The belief that, uh, well, actually, if we removed the barriers of school or the, the we removed the school buildings and all of the expectations, our society would crumble because we can't trust everybody to learn. And education isn't just for you, it's for your society too. And so it's a big risk to remove those kind of ideas because, I, I mean, I, I'd probably learn or maybe I wouldn't because I'm really lazy and I just sit on my, my bottom all day if I didn't have to do it. So that's the, th that's the thing getting in the way as well, our, our beliefs about why people learn and how people learn and what would happen if those societal pressures weren't pushing down on us to do this stuff. It's not practical, Is I guess is my point. It's not practical. It is an ideological and, and philosophical set of reasons that's kind of stopping us doing this. Maybe we just tried in a small country first. A Scandinavian one, no doubt. <laughs> Uh, so that was it. I mean, I've been a big fan of this book for a long time, and this really helped me to kind of make sense of it and see. And in, it, we've been we've been pretty um, positive about the solutions. We were quite critical of parts of his his critique because it it is a little bit dated in parts. But I think his solution holds up better than ever. And we've we've interviewed people who do unschooling, and this is really not very different at all to unschooling. And I, I use unschooling rather than homeschooling because as we know, that's a the, the notion of homeschooling is a very big uh, spectrum of ideas, but the concept of unschooling where there isn't a set curriculum, you have to define what it is you're interested in and then yes, go find what you need to do it. And normally the parent or someone in the community would act in that kind of educator at large role. So I think for me, that unschooling model is the closest that we've got to to this. But I guess speaking from my own personal experience of having a, a kid who didn't attend school for quite a few years, he now is taking those standardized tests to allow him to get the qualifications because he wants to go to university. So I understand that the end point is still those certificates, but that is not the be all and end all of learning it is a very small part of what education is and what education could be i would love at some point in our exploration of uh, as we're moving into the progressive school 
to dig into a few of the other books that I love, especially Pedagogy of the Oppressed by mm-hmm. Paolo Freire. But a few others. I mentioned Freedom to Learn here, which is a Carl Rogers book. Um, he's a person-centered counselor. There's, there's a small selection of books that I've kept with me, education books I've kept with me through the years. And uh, I think a lot of their ideas are still very valid, if, if dated in some places. And I think um, it's interesting to see people who were writing 50 to 100 years ago who have ideas that are still revolutionary, but seem practical in many ways also, but haven't been adopted because of our political systems and our beliefs about education and so on. And in terms of us covering this book or other books like it that have this kind of progressive counselor-centric idea behind them. Yeah, in our narrative right now, you know, we've talked about the traditional approach to school with the expert apprentice kind of model. We've talked about the mainstream, the coach athlete kind of model in depth. And as you're saying, we know the fragrance of what some of these progressive ideas look like, but they are not solidified in a vast quantity yet in the world around us. And to a large degree, a lot of this stuff has remained either as ideals for things that we could do or simply existing in pockets here and there and uh, across the educational ecosystem. So yeah, we're looking at texts like these as pointers for what new, more child counselor-centric approaches to education might look like. Similar to when the mainstream approach uh, gained its dominance in terms of credentialism and and standardized tests and curriculum, it was only when it actually became the main system that it really came into its own, which is probably in the last 30 or 40 years. And I I would argue it's still got a good chunk of a ways to go before it reaches the maturity. And my hope is that it reaches a maturity level where uh, it is a healthy and balanced version. Working in pockets is an interesting experiment. But it's only when these ideas become the norm that you can actually see to what extent they work. The idea that Illich has, of course, it would work in a small pocket, but it would be far, far more effective if it was the main mode of education. Because all of the barriers to getting those resources and finding those people and peers would have been removed and, and the system would be working to promote those ideas rather than the current system kind of gets in the way of those ideas. So uh, pockets are good. Like we say, the hacker who's out there trying to find new ways. Or the pioneer Pioneer. setting up new ways in pocket. Absolutely. It is very, very valuable. And in fact, it's the only way really that change will happen. So following Illich's uh, model, get out there, find some peers who are interested, find yourself some skills models that you can work with and observe, find yourself an educator at large that can teach you the way to go, whether they're a counselor or a coach or an expert or some mix of the three. And finally, find those resources you need. One of those resources, Rob, might just be that form that we have made. We suggest that if you're ever interested in our model and you would like to find out maybe how you can use some of the ideas that we describe in, especially if you go back to episode 100, if you like some of those ideas, fill in that form, get in touch with us, and uh, let's see how this journey unfolds. And you can find that form in the description of this episode. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon.